Welcome to the final episode of reading my mother's drafts for her dissertation. She's detailing the accounts of abuse she was at the hands of my father. I would like to start by first giving you the actual name of my mother's final dissertation, which helped her to receive her PhD in psychotherapy, and read a couple of the acknowledgments she put in her dissertation. First of all, her dissertation is entitled, A Qualitative Study of Affluent Women Who Have Left Abusive Heterosexual Marriages, Their Stories of Survival and Healing. And some of her acknowledgments that I thought were important to include are written in her words, and they start like this. Thank you to my cousin, Sandy for her continual words of encouragement and unwavering faith in my capabilities. Her acknowledgement and reminders of my past strengths afforded me the mental fuel and determination that I needed to press past certain points of saturation. A special thank you to my children, Erica, Levi, and Cecilia, for their understanding my need to isolate myself myself at times for the purpose of continuity. Thank you for so often reminding me of how proud you are of me and my determination to somehow make a difference in the world. I am so proud of each of you as well. Finally, I would like to thank my parents, Dub and Dolly who afforded me the opportunity to attend St. Mary's University. Their belief in the process of continued education making a difference in people's lives spurred me to this terminal degree. Their complete and utter confidence in me and in my abilities has always been the basis of my belief in myself. I carry their many words of wisdom to others, and I love and appreciate them more than they could ever know. And with those acknowledgments, we begin our final reading. Trigger warning, this reading contains stories of abuse towards adults and children. This section is titled, The Words That Waged My War. My situation is different than many in that I had already left my abuser for good, had broken free, before I began learning most of what I know now about verbal and emotional abuse. What I have learned has made complete and perfect sense as I have been able to go back mentally and apply it to my situation. Having broken free, I needed desperately to understand what had happened to me. I needed to put meaning to why I had never been able to leave such a toxic situation. When I finally went to a psychiatrist for medication for depression, a depression defined by guilt and pain like I had never felt before, I had just finally and completely left my husband. It was in December when I decided to meet with the psychiatrist. My husband had finally exited my home in early November. I remember crying in the good doctor's office, saying I felt so guilty, a commonly expressed emotion connected to depression. He described Wellbutrin in the sustained released form, and he recommended I visit with a psychologist in his office group who specialized in depression of the sort. This being the fifth counselor I had consulted during the course of my verbally abusive marriage is the one I credit with helping me to understand the dynamics of verbal and emotional abuse, an understanding that has made everything fall into place for me, an understanding that has helped me to totally rid my life and the lives of my children from this experienced abuser. 
Understanding the dynamics from which he operated equipped and prepared me to approach the man from a more objective point of view, helped me to remove myself from the heretofore emotionally subjectivity from which I had previously dealt with him. I will say that I had difficulty in hearing the counselor as he suggested the possibility of my husband's never having loved me, of wanting me, yes, but wanting me to control. Yes, he chose me over all other women, chose me to abuse and to have power over. Two types of power, personal power that comes from one's own spirit and power over which people who feel no power, personal power sap and bleed from others. My husband chose me for the purpose of gaining power, of feeling better about himself. The fact that I had two small children increased his capability of gaining power. It's pretty easy to sap the power from tiny ones, so defenseless against the attack of a brutal adult, especially if that adult is one whom deviously manipulated them into loving him, trusting him, and or counting on him. Remember, a surprise attack is just as devastating and draws just as much blood in the eyes and mind of an abuser as an overt defense does. There are no rules, no fair play. Expect the unexpected. Wound or be wounded. Life itself is black or white. Trust no one. Love no one. Not even yourself. For everyone will betray you, even your own soul, who demands love and respect, yet acts in ways that will drive all who have ever loved you away. The life of an abuser is a painfully ambiguous one, a war within oneself whose mission appears to be a continuous seek and secure and then destroy. This counselor attempted to explain to me the dynamics of my verbally, emotionally, and physically abusive relationship. He expressed to me the possibility that I had never had a relationship with this man, as a true relationship necessitates an exchange, give and take, and at least an attempt of equality. A verbally abusive relationship defies the very definition of a true relationship. A verbally abusive relationship is a one-way street. As do child abuse and sexual abuse, verbal abuse consists of a perpetrator and a victim. Verbal abuse is not a fight. A fight takes two who exchange fairly and equally. This does not mean that the victim does not defend herself or her children. Everyone has a survival instinct, physical and spiritual, and the motherly instinct is to protect and defend her young. When one's spirit has been brutally attacked, paralleled to a physical beating, one will attempt to defend oneself against the perpetrator. Words tossed back to the abuser represent this defense, not an argument or a fight. The abuse goes both ways, is therefore a false statement. It is important to understand the difference between a fight and verbal abuse in order to help women alleviate their guilt at having merely defended their spirits. Well, it's partly my fault I entered into it too, is a common statement that victims make. If I hadn't talked back, or if I hadn't fought back, or if I hadn't let him draw me into it, it never would have escalated. These are all common fallacies. It would have escalated if he wanted it to. It wouldn't have escalated if he had not wanted it to. Victims need to know that what they do or do not do is virtually unimportant. How strong a dose of power the abuser needs at the time constitutes the only significant factor contributing to the intensity of the abuse. All efforts to vo avoid or diffuse the attack will fail. Being quieter, prettier, a better cook, a neater housekeeper, richer, a better mother, a less inhalated lover will not appease the demon, the fiend, who lives inside the abuser. The only hope for stopping the abuse is for the abuser to confront the fiend within himself. 
the fiend who hides emotions and past shaming experiences from the man within whom he resides needs to be exposed for who or what it really is. This fiend must become a friend who shares the pain and reveals the secrets he has kept for so long. Knowing that the pain will be almost overwhelming, the man must be willing and ready to journey into his past to the days of his childhood when the monstrous pain took over and the fiend was born. The fiend was first a friend who locked away the pain and the shame, who helped the young child to survive. Having merely survived, it is time once again to live, to feel, to experience true relationships as he was capable of doing at birth. As man is physically stronger as an adult than as a child, he will be stronger emotionally and better able to understand and to handle those experiences that were deadly to the child. If he wants to, a man can make friends with the fiend, can integrate those heretofore deadly experiences, and give them meaning. Only by doing so can the abuser fully become human within a full range of emotions, including empathy and love. As the adage goes, a man can change only if he himself truly wants to. A man's wife wanting him to change is not enough, and no counselor, psychologist, nor psychiatrist can perform magic on an abuser. A man cannot change by merely listening to a psychotherapist. Change will only be seen as the culmination of a lengthy and painful journey into the past coupled with a lot of hard work in changing cognitively and behaviorally. It will not be an easy road to recovery. This next section is titled, The Victim's Road to Recovery. A. Carving the road out of the wilderness. B. Paving the road. C. Walking down the road with their head held high. A. Looking back, I visualize myself alone in the middle of wilderness. I am standing, lone and small, unable to see beyond the shrub towering high above me in all directions. Having lost all sense of direction, depressed and confused, I begin to sense a spinning. Slow at first, then faster, as a heaviness weighs me down, pushes me down. I silently scream and cry, I am dying. Being held prisoner in my own body, my spirit fights for her life. I know that I must make a move, any move, to break the spells of control and immobility. Straining against the intense downward pressure, knowing that I must make a move before I become any weaker and am crushed completely, annihilated and sent spinning into oblivion, I concentrate and focusing all my strength into a single forward movement. B. Part of what helped my healing was knowing that I had to heal in order to be present for my children. Guilt was a main deterrent to my fully healing. As is common, the feeling of guilt accompanied my depression. I remember the very first trip to my psychiatrist's office. I knew that I was depressed, finally, as the depression unmasked itself to me, unconscious movement into unconsciousness. I began to actually feel sad and eventually began waking myself from a sound sleep with my own sobs of anguish. As I sat before the psychiatrist, I cried tears of guilt and told him so. Looking back now, I find the feelings that I felt and the hot cognitions fascinating. Interesting in the sense that I did not feel sorry for myself at any time. I felt sorry for my husband, the abuser who had been the source of turmoil in my family. I felt guilty for giving up on him, so to speak. He actually gave me a card once during the month that immediately followed the gun in my mouth incident on which he wrote, don't give up on me. He knew me well. He was one of the few people who I had really allowed to penetrate my soul itself. I had loved him deeply and completely. I had come to trust him and rely on him for comfort in my darkest moments, revealing to him my total vulnerable self. 
We had connected, and he was part of me. We had shared the birth of a child, the embodiment of our love, who was to live on forever in the universe. Yes, I felt guilty for giving up on him. Wasn't I the strong one, the soft glue that quietly oozed among all family members, cushioning the blows from one to the other, preventing the actual physical contacts from fists and jaws, buffering the pain, absorbing the shock? Wasn't I the optimist, always believing in positive outcomes and making them so? Wasn't I letting my family down, giving up on the family if giving up on him? Paradoxically, I also felt guilty at not giving up on him a long time ago. Guilty for holding my precious children down in the muck with me, not trusting my gut to climb up and out to safety. I had seen my children's self-esteem suffering, wounds that I treated with private schools and expensive clothes and explanations of their fathers, having a bad day at work and his not really meaning this or that. How could I ever forgive myself for allowing those atrocities to be committed towards my children, for giving him one more chance so many times? How could I just go back and change it all? Erase all those years of pain and humiliation that my children had suffered at the hands of my husband. I had always told him that the children came first and that I would choose them over him if he failed to change his abusive ways. But how many times had I said this during the decade of our marriage? My children had suffered irreparable damage, having no choice at their young and formative ages of where to live. They were stuck with me and therefore forced to live in the slime of abuse struggling not to drown in my absence as I went off to the store or to school, entrusting them to the devil himself. I repeat, how could I forgive myself? My weakness, as I saw it, my not leaving his grasp, was unforgivable. I had allowed my children to be mentally and emotionally tortured for years. This was unforgivable, and I told my counselor so. The counselor I refer to at this point is the psychologist whom I credit for my recovery, the man who helped me to understand the dynamics of verbal abuse. This man helped me to realize that I could not be present for my children now if I continued to dwell on the past. My children forgave me, but I could not forgive myself. My children were proud of me for having the strength to leave, for they knew the strength it took to stand up to him, to look him in the eye and challenge him. As strong as I am, which I have finally been able to see, it took a few months of my counselor and my children telling me how proud they were of me, how strong I had been and was, and that they forgave me for anything, that I felt I needed forgiveness for me to actually be able to forgive myself. My oldest daughter accompanied me to counseling several times, and she relayed to her siblings what I needed from them that week. The counselor assigned homework to my children and to me, homework of bestowing verbal forgiveness on me, together with lots of words of praise and physical hugs and kisses, actually feeling the forgiveness of my children greatly helped me to forgive myself, which was a major step in my healing process. When I first stepped into the psychiatrist's office, I had already decided that the abusive relationship between my husband and me was already over. I had been watching my spirit slowly die, being murdered actually, at the hands of the man who I had vowed to love and make my life with here on earth. I watched at that point with a detachment that aided my objectivity, almost as if I were observing myself from afar, trying to determine, through my observations, who this new person really was. I have to admit that I was not completely convinced that I could trust myself to really hang in this time and see to fulfillment that which I had put into motion once again. The process of finally separating from my spouse, never to return to the relationship. 
After all that I had been through and all that my children had been through, I couldn't understand, couldn't believe how incredibly difficult and painful the separation was. I would ask my counselor, myself, others, why I couldn't hate my spouse for what he had done to my children, if not to me. As I prepared for trial, I asked others who knew me and my husband intimately to put into writing incidents they could distinctly recall that could help my case. Let me back up for a moment and explain what I mean by helping my case. When I filed for divorce, I did so with the intention of remaining friends with my spouse so that our then nine-year-old daughter would not suffer needlessly from her dad's and my divorce. One of the reasons, so I believed for staying in the marriage, was this daughter, who did honestly love her father. I want to add that I strove diligently to shield my little daughter from the atrocities of this man toward me whenever I could. She had thankfully been absent from the house during the worst incidents, and I really did not want her to know that her dad was capable of treating me so horribly. I realize now that she knew more than I thought, as is always the case. So even though I initiated divorce proceedings with amicable intentions, about two weeks after her dad had finally left the house, my little daughter began crying. The scene was in the kitchen, and my husband had phoned a few times, apparently for the sole purpose of calling me names and belittling me. I had hung up and refused to answer the phone again. My older daughter, then 19, answered the phone and said she would speak with him, but her bottom line was his cussing, at which point she would hang up. After her hanging up about three times, her sister started crying. I assumed the reason for her tears was that she missed her dad. Denying that reason, she voiced to her sister and me that she did not want to go with this man alone, that she had been afraid of him ever since she had seen him hit me in the mouth and make me bleed. This statement, and the fear with which she spoke it, prompted my return to my attorney's office the following day. From that point on, our main concern was that of protecting my daughter from her father, seeing to it that she would never be forced to be with him alone. When I asked family members to describe incidents of abuse that they had witnessed, such was the case to which I refer. Seeing these incidents in writing, resurrecting memories that I had selectively forgotten, evoked feelings of shame and guilt in me. How could I have stayed with him through all of the abuse? My older daughter actually pinned incidents that I had been aware of on a, a solely subconscious level. Initially shocked at what I read, I vaguely recalled fringes of the incidents. Oh yes, she had mentioned that he had said that. A couple of incidents I had no recollection of at all. I imagine today that I did not know at the time, was told, but the atrocity was too disgusting for me to absorb the reality of its happening. One incident of which I now write, I have called upon mentally when I have needed to renew my horror at the practice of my abuser's fatherhood. This scene is of my son's bedroom. My son was eight or nine. The father was screaming very closely to the boy's ear, lest he have any chance of being ignored. The son is attempting to crawl away from the man to escape the abuse, but if he rises to walk, he will be shoved down again to the floor. The reason is an unclean room. Names are being called. Poor excuse for a human being. Stupid. Slob. Worthless. The scene is short. A freeze frame, with action, if you will. Sound and color. I sob as I write this. I notice that I cannot personalize this in writing using articles rather than possessive pronouns. The scene in my mind, however, is just all too personal. This scene is a common one when I experience flashbacks, unexpected and unwelcome intrusions, as I go about my daily life. 
I gasp and shake my head to rid my mind of the vision, to distance myself once again from the atrocious past. I replace the vision when I can with the necessary intruism. I must forgive myself. I will continue later as I do not wish to continue now. I forced myself through this area of writing as I want to try to capture the emotions, the hot cognitions on paper as I experience them in an attempt to relay the reader the reality of my experience. She goes on to another section. This one is titled Process of Healing and the Dynamics of Verbal Abuse. When I first met the counselor who diagnosed my verbally violent relationship, I was clinically depressed. This marked the first time in my life that I accepted, willingly, in fact sought psychotropic medication. I had never experienced such emotional pain and such lengthy anguish that marked the actual dying of my spirit, death of one's spirit, which characterizes a verbally abusive relationship, may be likened to an unwilling abortion of the soul. One's true self, the essence of one's unique individuality, is battered down and beaten back relentlessly until it collapses under the blows too weak to defend its truth and identity. The aborted spirit, having been slowly suctioned from one's body, will be renamed, given a different identity according to the desires of the abortive abuser. This evolved spirit, having been shaped and molded by the passions of the abuser, will ideally meet his every need, desire, and whim. This false spirit, which now occupies the shell of the abuser's woman, will continue to evolve and change as the abuser sees desirable. The fact is, the farther one de departs from one's true self, the more disorienting, confusing, and crazy the world seems. One must be true to one's own spirit, the outside matching the inside, so to speak. The fact is, a verbally violent relationship, by its very definition, denotes a direct proportion of contentment between the two parties. The more content the abuser, the less content the abused. Another interesting relationship exists in direct proportion with a verbally violent couple. The amount of control the abuser needs to exert speaks to the strength of his partner. The more numerous and violent the incidents of abuse, the stronger the partner. A weakened partner requires less effort to maintain control over, to keep in line with his desires, so to speak. At the apex of my being brainwashed, I was the most compliant, striving diligently to please him. I demanded less and less from him for my children. I eventually demanded nothing from him for myself, and I tried my hardest to do everything he, he wished. I strove to anticipate his desires and moods to protect him from any problem that life might hold. I understand that a person might actually want to protect one's life partner to anticipate the partner's desires and try to meet their mate's needs out of love. I condone and obviously commend such a relationship, which exists in the absence of violence. Behaving out of love, which means following one's true spirit, is the opposite of behaving out of fear, though the results may be the same, pleasing one's partner. It's really interesting looking at the ways an abuser establishes compliance from his partner. One way is through habit, establishing the habit of compliance. I remember wanting to do things for my husband because I really did love him. Often he would tell me to do something as I was in the process of performing the act. I thought it was so bizarre at the time, I absolutely did not understand the purpose of telling me to do what I was already doing. The habit of compliance may easily be established through simple tasks that seemingly make no difference to the unsuspecting partner. It's a simple little request, such a little thing to make him happy. Squeeze the toothpaste and fold it just so. Tie the socks together with this little method. Secure the second button of shirts when hanging them. 
by his brand of starch and no other, etc. Harmless little compliances, willingly done when so in love. When little slip-up, however, reveals the monstrous importance of such compliances. You will never again forget the second button rather than the first, no matter what you think is better. A sweet little compliance done out of love and wanting to please has taken on a different dimension. You must perform the task to avoid pain of hurt feelings at first, the beginning of the journey toward a crippled and dying spirit. As I said, the stronger one is the more violence needed to control and mold. Standing up for oneself, refusing to comply, requires more effort, more verbal violence to establish control and cooperation. The reality of the situation with accidental noncompliance or noncompliance because you thought that your way was more beneficial to your abuser is that you are so completely shocked and hurt at the abuser's reaction that you are immobilized. You quietly suffer the pain just at first, no matter how strong you are. The injustice of the situation you attribute to his hand, day at work, or sick friend, or whatever he tells you is profusely apologizing for and yelling at you. Your spirit has already been yelled at, shot down, and hurt. Apologies do not nullify nor reverse the damage done to one's spirit, however. The journey to the death of one's spirit at the hands of her lover has begun. There is no turning back, no negation, no nullification. Though he may tell you to forget about the past and start over, the spirit does not start over. Nature does not work that way. One cannot begin a healing process until one is out of harm's way. A stabbing victim cannot accurately claim that his wounds are beginning to heal if the wounds are being reopened on a daily basis. I voiced anxious frustration to my therapist. I was tired of the pain. It wore me down so. I wanted to concentrate on my children and on work and on my studies. I understand the depth of PTSD that I was dealing with and I talked about it and wrote about it, but I felt little relief. I was stuck in the sand and spinning my wheels, unable to make progress. The problem with my situation was, although my husband had left the house months ago, I still thought that I had to accept his calls, lest he accuse me of not allowing him to communicate with his daughter. 99% of his calls and pages, 50 or more per day, had nothing to do with visiting his daughter. Many calls and messages left on my answering machine had to do with taking her away from me, as well as ruining my reputation, breaking me financially, fixing it so that I got fired and was unable to get another job in the city, reporting me to child protection services, malicious prosecution, other frivolous lawsuits involving refusal to give him stuff, etc. I think it is important to mention that a verbally violent marriage will likely conclude with an equally abusive divorce proceeding. My own proceedings, which lasted the better part of two years, involved me having to get two divorces since he called for a retrial after the first divorce had been finalized. Since he had been a runner for law firms for years on and off from the beginning of our marriage, he paid for legal services with favors, submitted a lot of his own forms, which were unacceptable but still required responses, refused to cooperate, which required me taking him to court and forcing him to cooperate, etc., Although he called in many favors and lost respect from the legal field in the city, he can no longer work within the legal system in the city, he was able to legally harass me and cause me to spend more than $50,000 defending myself. He paid nothing for his offensive behaviors, and he has yet to pay any child support or any of the legal fees that he was ordered by the court to pay me. It will cost me to enforce these court orders, which I have recently begun proceedings on. 
As I said, an abusive spouse will be an abusive ex-spouse and will actually fulfill as many threats as possible, so one must be prepared with a lot of support from family and friends. I found the police force to be tremendously supportive once they were certain that I had no intention of resuming a relationship with my abusive partner. I feel compelled to know that individual police officers have widely different, differing opinions and knowledge of abusive dynamics, and approximately one quarter of the force batter their partners. My advice is to ask questions of each police officer that responds to a call, find an officer that is knowledgeable, and then request his assistance when possible. Ask him what his schedule is if he does not offer that information to you, and ask his permission to request him when filling out reports. One particular officer taught me a lot about the different types of reports and procedures leading up to the arrest and successful conviction of my ex-spouse, information I will share in another section of this reading. As I was saying, one cannot recover from PTSD if the trauma is still continuing. In fact, if one is still living with an abusive partner, the term PTSD does not fit, as there is nothing post about the situation. Living with an abusive partner is traumatic stress. A victim will continue to suffer and be controlled and probably continue to decline mentally and emotionally until she completely escapes the situation. By complete escape, I mean not seeing the abuser's face, including photos, not hearing his voice, not seeing his handwriting. An escape means a complete break in the communication, a total severing of all bonds. When I stopped communicating with my spouse, I felt different. I felt free. My husband's brother, a former police officer, gave me permission to discontinue communication with my spouse. That night was a def definite turning point in our relationship. That night, I saw the beginning of my healing process. All communication I arranged legally, via protective order, to go through our lawyers. Any attempt at direct communication with me or my children, therefore and thereafter, became a violation of the protective order, a crime against the state. Just because one biologically shares children does not mean that one must speak with that partner. In fact, in dealing with an abuser, legally is the only way to go on everything. Abusers are specialists in entrapment and seduction. An abusive parent will shamelessly use his own children for retaliating you leaving. He sees no limits to using the children. Anything he can think of is fair play to him. It is up to you to protect your children accordingly. Ridding your children of their father's abuse is the best possible move that you can make for them. As long as he has a limitless connection to the children, he has a limitless connection to you, and he knows it. I recommend legally setting up restricted visitation, where he is allowed to visit with the children only at an office with a counselor in the room. If this sounds cruel, as it did to me at first, you must toughen up and trust that this is the best arrangement for the children, because he will use them to get back at you. Your children will become pawns in his game of control. Remember, it is a game for him. You are in his game, and he will use the children. It is my opinion that you are allowing your children to be abused if you do not set up very restrictive supervised visitation. You can always ease the supervision legally, but do not fall prey to his tears, to his accusations of your using the children as pawns, to his attempts at evoking feeling of guilt in you, to his pleas for forgiveness, nor his demands of fatherly rights. He knows no limits and he will stop at nothing to either get you back or to get back at you for leaving and removing the children from his abusive control. You must remain strong. 
The longer you are away from his voice, his face, his handwriting, the stronger you will become. The strength that you will feel as you heal will be unbelievable. Your healed self will be the most amazing you that have, you have ever experienced. You will heal, and you will be so grateful to yourself that you went through the pain of leaving. Your children will be so much better off. They too will become amazingly strong achievers once they are removed from the painfully controlling bonds that have made them slaves to their abusers' whims. When one is feeling overwhelmed or scared or weak, making decisions is an extremely difficult task. Indecision is, in itself, a burden to be reckoned with. When others gave me permission to cut off communication with my abusive husband, the burden of indecision was eased. Daily life was so much better than it had been in years. I was amazed at how positive I felt, my true nature, and the mere absence of his voice and face. Removing myself from his extremely negative presence and his extremely negative influence was a blatantly obvious first step toward healing. I used to think and even remark to my children about how sad it was to me that his very existence was so negative. None of us could imagine what life must be like to be so apparently pessimistic inside. My children are like me in that their natures bespeak optimism and a positive outlook on life in general. I used to never have a bad day. Bad things may have happened, but I could honestly say I never had a bad day. Since my depression had lifted, since my children and I have been allowed to be ourselves again, I'm so happy to be able to honestly relate that we feel that way again. Life is wonderful again, the best it's ever been, actually. Seeing the improvement in my children has also greatly aided my healing process. We support one another completely, the way a family should be, and we all allow and even encourage one another to be our true selves, for we are all wonderful and creative and loving and sensitive and unique individuals. We are positive individually and as a family unit. Life is just so wonderful. Divorcing my abusive partner represents the very best gift that I have given to myself and to my children. Divorcing my violent spouse represents the gift of life itself to myself and to my children. Once I stopped the abusive influence, the road to recovery began for me and my children. Our life situations improved so dramatically with that first step that recovery has really come pretty rapidly for all of us. Less than two years later, we are soaring. So many good things have happened in his absence that once recovery began, it appears to have sped up with each positive influence. My son's grades have improved recently and he seems to have completely turned his life around. My daughters know no bounds to their achievements and strength. One has made the dean's list for the first time, where she was only surviving before. The younger one has just been accepted by one of the most powerful commercial and theatrical agencies in Hollywood. I personally feel that the world is ours for the taking, that each of us now feels the power within ourselves to achieve anything. I do admit to the difficulty of climbing out of the muck, for the downward suction is incredibly strong, and the abuser is intent on keeping his victims down there and under his control. As in any successful military move, the element of surprise has its place in a victorious outcome. I suggest moving out and filing for divorce without prior warning to the abusive spouse. Safety being a major issue in violent relationships prompts me to advise safety over honesty. A verbally violent partner is a small step away from being physically abusive, and a physically violent partner is a very small step from being a murderer. 
My children were in grave danger, as was I. Our spirits were poisoned and very close to death. The protective order assisted in our survival, both spiritually, disallowing contact of any sort, and physically, via threat of imprisonment if, if he came around. My partner was arrested for violations of the protective order, which I had to pursue. Merely filing a protective order will not keep you safe. You must keep yourself safe. Filing violations of the order with homicide could lead to arrest and therefore greater protection. So much is up to you to escape your violent partner. So much strength and courage and support is needed. The external support is there as violence, verbal as well as physical, becomes better recognized as unacceptable even within a family situation. Support will mount. The first step toward freedom is a big one, but life is so much better in the absence of violence. The outcome is worth the risk and the pain of separation from an abuser. For me, leaving was no longer an option. My very life and the lives of my children depended on me leaving. I wish I could encourage others to leave while there is still an option. Strength dwindles with time. The sooner one leaves a verbally violent relationship, the better one's chances of a safe escape. The chances of an abusive man changing are so small, especially while he is in a relationship. It takes the shock of a loved one leaving to jolt him into realization that his behavior is unacceptable and counterproductive to his goals of having a partner. Often the end of a relationship is still not enough to get a man to change his abusive ways. My advice to you is to leave. Leaving is your only chance for survival. That concludes the reading of my mother's notebooks. Um, at the beginning, I mentioned that I had written a note to my mother after reading these. Not a note to my mother, but a note to the reader, not really knowing what this was ever going to be, but um, this is my response to reading these um, drunk on a plane in 2009. I, the young daughter my mother speaks of in this writing, am so fortunate to have these words at hand. My mother went on years later to meet the most amazing man our family could imagine. Sweet, friendly, hilarious, in awe of my beautiful mother, he truly was the best thing to happen to our family. I, being brought up in such a fucked up situation, do have anger issues that never cease to let me forget. Forget the swords of depression and rage I have inherited from my situation. I was about 14 when I began to have intense tantrums and reactions at the drop of a hat. I now realize how difficult that must have been for my mother to see. Of course, I would never in a million years blame her for such occurrences, but I truly was, and felt like I was, my father's daughter. But as of September of last year, in 2008, when my mother and our beloved St. Michael, that was my mom's nickname for the man that she fell in love with, were tragically killed in an automobile accident together. I have made a conscious decision and realization that I am most definitely and simply my mother's daughter. Forgiving, motherly, loving, affectionate, strong, wise, beautiful, tiny, and tremendously inspired to save others from pain. I am so fortunate to look and sound and feel how my mother does and did. She is by far the most amazing woman to have existed in my heart, and I will proudly follow her steps. I found it overwhelming the amount of grateful and confident people that I met at my mother's funeral the many she had touched and inspired and given life back to throughout the years. Seemingly, all I did was stand there, in her handmade hat and petticoat skirt, beige high heels. 
for them to know right off the bat that I was Bibi's daughter. The stories I had heard were also heartwarming and the condolences were so appreciated. But honestly, she was mine and I was hers. And I know when she died, she thought of me and my siblings. She was hurt by the vision of our torn lives due to her and Mike's death. But knowing damn well we were survivors, strong and independent people that she created, she knew we would be supportive and care for each other. I find myself constantly reiterating the ideals and motives my mother deeply instilled in me in, a, in daily life. I smile, I get excited, I have fun, I dance, I dream, I live. I'm an optimist. I have many roles for which I wholeheartedly do my best at. I know my father will never deserve my love after what he tried to do to my family, especially my mother. My brother and sister and I do still struggle with PTSD on many levels, including the new one of our beloved parents' sudden and tragic and gruesome fucking death. But I live knowing that I never hesitated to tell my mother how much I loved her.